Hey, man, that was singing right there. I like that. You guys need to sing more. Appreciate men singing for the Lord. Wally, there's a bunch of words in that verses, isn't there? You got out a lot more than I would have, I can tell you that right now. But uh, let me say a couple things as we get started tonight, and I want to thank you for being here. And, uh, you know, a lot of churches have given up on Sunday nights, and we're just not going to do that. And the Bible says that we, we need to... Uh, to earnestly contend for the faith, and we need to assemble ourselves together as the manner of some is, and listen, encouraging one another, especially as we get closer to the Lord's return. And uh, listen, I don't know about you, but I'm glad for Wednesday nights, great pit stop to pull over and just spend time in the Word of God with other Christians and learn more. And uh, listen, every week, I'm telling you, almost every day, God shows me something that I haven't seen before, and I've been a Christian now for almost 38 years, and uh, we need to just stay at it and just continue to grow and, and ask the Lord to help us. And so I wanted to just say a few things to you as a pastor tonight, and some of you are listening by way of live stream, but we've, we've had, uh, and we've, this has been a blessing, we've had a lot of folks that have been visiting our church, I don't know if you've noticed that, and a lot of churches never see visitors and let me, just, let me just ask you, and many of you are really good at this, but let's, let it, let's just be a welcoming committee of one, and when you see somebody here that you've never seen before, uh, go up to them, introduce yourself, you know, and, and say, listen, are you here by yourself, or why don't you come sit with us, you know, and just be, be a friend to them. Those folks that I talked to on uh, yesterday, I was telling them that a lot of people have told me when they've come that they've been to this church and this church and this church, and they were there, and nobody said a word to them. And listen, nobody wants to go to a church like that. We're not a part of dead orthodoxy, and we want to be a part of a growing, living, vibrant church. And so let's, let's make people feel welcome. How many of you remember what it was like when you were the visitor, right? And you remember what it feels like, and boy, should I go back? Did anybody even notice me? Whatever. And so let's... Let's be welcoming and uh, be friends to those that come. And uh, listen, I'll tell you one, one way you can be a friend to somebody is say, listen, why don't you go to lunch with us? You know, boy, that's a, that's a good way right there. Break bread with them and uh, break a pizza, whatever it is, with them. Uh, so that's one thing I want to say. Secondly, uh, if you are interested in being a part of the soul winning training, and of course we always need that, and I realize some of you might have a, a, a tough time getting here at 5 o'clock, summer in the choir, whatever. But uh, in the next couple weeks, I'm actually going to show, as Brother Kenny said, and I've, I've ordered, I have some New Testaments that I want to give to those that are able to be a part of it, and I'm going to show them how to, how to do some things with it to be ready to be prepared to share the gospel. And so if you want to come and be a part of that at 5 o'clock on Sundays for the next couple weeks. And then the other thing I want to say is this. God has given me, in my life, some tremendous mentors, and uh, one of those men is my pastor that's pastoring out in California, and uh, as I was out there a couple weeks ago, I found out that he was actually going to be preaching right here in Naples, Florida on November the 1st, that's a Monday night at 7 o'clock, and if some of you would like to go, if we need to, we'll take a van, maybe take two vans, uh, whatever we need to, if that many want to go, but... We're, we would probably need to leave here by 5 o'clock. It's an hour and a half, hour and 25 minutes from here to Seagate Baptist Church. But if you'd like to go and hear uh, some great preaching, I'd love for you to hear my pastor and, of course, fellowship with other Christians. But if you're interested in that, let me know, and we'll get, like I said, whatever vehicle situation we need to. But if you can look at your calendars, maybe you can get off a little bit early but that's on Monday, November the 1st, and so I wanted to throw that out there if anybody's interested in that. Well, tonight, uh, hopefully, you, you got a copy of that small book of notes, and uh, Brother Rogan said, I thought I had two in my hand. It's so thick. It is, and so we're going to try to get through three of the prophets tonight, minor prophets, in our Route 66 series, and so, Brother Adrian, I'm going to just kind of skip ahead to the beginning. Of course, they're familiar now with uh, the sections and the books on the shelves and so on. But we're going to start tonight with the book of Hosea, and Hosea actually means salvation. Now, as we go through these, keep in mind that these are the books of the prophets, 
okay? Some of this might seem harsh. Some of it might seem judgmental. Remember, they were declaring the words of God, all right? If some of you need to move, because that looks like we got one screen out, that's fine. Maybe Brother Kenny can work some magic and get that screen to work. But here's the thing is, is that we want to understand these are prophets, all right? Now, Hosea, I love this. Uh, I was thinking of uh, even Brother Robert. I love these, these names. A lot of times we say Hosea, the actual Hebrew uh, rendering of this is Hoshea, is how you say his name. All the time we say Hosea, but in the, in the Hebrew, it's actually Hoshea is how you say his name. He's the prophet of domestic distress. He was known as the home missionary, and Hosea was, well, notice here, this was in the time while Jonah was the foreign missionary. So he was a home missionary. We'll talk a little bit about what that is, what that entails. But notice it says here, to get Israel to see the error of their ways, of course, sin we're talking about here, God commanded Hosea to take a wife who became unfaithful to him, and I've given you the references there, but again, God knew that. He, he wanted him to take a wife who would become unfaithful to him. Notice his children also were a great source of trouble. Even their names that they were given stood for distaste. They became symbols of Hosea's messages. A good friend of mine, Dr. Mark Rasmussen, he has two daughters, and then God gave him a son. And he always tells people that the only reason God gave him a son is so he would have sermon illustrations. And oftentimes, our, our children can be, become a source of, of uh, things that we can do, but in the message that Hosea was giving to God's people, his children played into that. Notice his children by name. The first one is Jezreel. Now, this, this was a boy. His name represented God's punishment upon Ahab and Jezebel for their sin against Naboth, and it symbolized God's punishment to Israel in Hosea's day. So names were very important, especially in the Old Testament. They stood for something. And so his first child, a boy, Jezreel, the second one was a daughter. Her name was Lorama, and her name means no more mercy. That's what her name literally means. And it, it was which God would not have on Israel for her sins. God is a merciful God. But if you read the book of Romans chapter 1, the Bible says he gave them up. God, God, listen, we continue to go away from God. God will let us go to whatever we're going to. Now, the moment we're ready to return, guess what? God's still there. He's never left. I like that song the guy sang that he's the same today that he was years ago. And so notice then his third child, which was another boy. So he had two boys and a girl, and this was Lorami. Lorami, his name meant no more my people. Now think about that. The first one's name literally was uh, represented God's punishment. The second one was no more mercy. The third one was no more my people. And the reason for Lorami is God had to turn from his people who acted like the devil's children. Now, this is a small book in the Bible. As you, as you look at the book of Hosea, really just a few chapters, uh, you see 14 chapters here, and it's interesting because the prefix, lo, on the second and third child is actually dropped from Ruama and Ami in chapter number 2. And the reason it was dropped is because it indicated that God would again have mercy on Israel and that he would claim her as his own. So again, we see the mercy of God, even though we see that coming out because of Israel's sin. Now, each experience that Hosea had in his home pictured Israel's spiritual adultery. He and his wife portrayed God as the husband and Israel as the unchaste wife. Now think about that. They illustrated God as the husband, the faithful husband, and Israel pictured the unchaste wife. God loved them, but Israel as a people continued to turn away from God. Now notice that Hosea, he illustrated 
God's great love for his backslidden people, his circumstances enabled him to speak with authority when he reprimanded Israel for her sins. One of the things I love about being a pastor or a preacher is that, look, a lot of times when people talk about things, they they don't have confidence in what they're talking about. I will tell you that I have all confidence in the Word of God. And so anytime I open the book and I teach or preach it, I do it with authority, not mine, but God's. And God, in, even in Hosea's day, he stood with authority, reprimanding Israel for her sins. Notice he was a contemporary with Amos of the northern kingdom and Isaiah and Micah of the southern kingdom. He lived to see the fulfillment of his prophecy. This didn't happen with many of the prophets in the capture of Israel by Assyria. Now, if you look on the chart that you're about to see, he was the fourth of the prophets. Do we have that chart? I think you, I think you guys have it on uh, one of your back pages there if you want to look at it. I won't take time tonight over here, but uh, I, p- pardon me for the box there. This was the best layout that I could find, but you see Israel, the northern kingdom at the top, Judah, the southern kingdom. We'll do this on the next two prophets as well as the other ones in the coming weeks, but notice that we are dealing with Hosea, up at the top, just a, a little ways in there, and, and of course, we'll, we'll see this, how that, that uh, he was the fourth of the prophets, just trying to give you a visual of where he fit in in the overall scheme of the prophets of God. Now, remember, these were minor prophets, just as important as the four major. The only difference was their message, or maybe the volume that we have called the books of the Bible might be smaller in size, all right? So keep that in mind. Now, notice in your notes here that he was, uh, again, we see in the contents here that Hosea chiefly prophesied against the ten tribes of Israel. He reproved them for their sins. He exhorted them to repent or to repentance. He threatened them with destruction. All of this was God's uh, message for him to give to them, and he comforted the truly godly with the promise of the Messiah and of the happy state of the spiritual seed in the latter days. So that's a lot. He was a busy man, a lot of message that goes out, what he was prophesying, what he was sharing from the Lord against the ten tribes of Israel. Israel's spiritual adultery was the sin of idolatry. This is what we see in the Old Testament. That was Israel's major sin. They just kept... Now, remember, idolatry is anything that comes between us and God. That's what it is. And that was her sin, which began with the northern kingdom's first king, Jeroboam, and it produced all kinds of wickedness in the land. And I want to give you just a a snapshot of what all this wickedness is. Notice these nine things. Number one, there was immorality of the kings. And I've given you the references, whether it's in the book of Hosea or other places, but immorality of the kings, that's the leadership of the day, all right? And as the leader goes, so goes the nation. Notice that we see the feast and the Sabbath became days when joy ceased. (laughs) Those were to be days, holy days, high days, days to celebrate what God had done for his people but the joy was gone on those special days. Notice thirdly, there was a rejection of knowledge. People didn't want to know, and that's indicative of our day-to-day. People don't want God's Word. Number four, God's law was forbidden, or excuse me, forgotten. People had forgotten. And By the way, this is why it's so important, and I love looking around the auditorium, and there might be some watching tonight. I love it when I see younger people, children and young adults. Why? Because if we don't teach them, it will be forgotten, God's Word. You know, people nowadays, churches nowadays aren't teaching on tithing. They're not teaching on being holy. They're not teaching on living separated lives. And if we just continue on the course with this feel-good, do-good religion, people aren't going to know God's Word the way that they should. And we see here God's law is forgotten. We also see in this day of, of Hosea, That Number five, they were living in spiritual adultery, and we said that. Number six, people, instead of priests, were offering sacrifices. That wasn't God's way. It was always God's way for the priests. That was their responsibility, their duties. 
Number seven, sacrifices were offered in the wrong place. Again, God established all these in, in order in the Old Testament, but yet man, every, every time you see it, they were doing things their way. Number eight, priests became corrupt. Now remember, these were not the kings, the, the political leaders, governmental leaders. Now these are the religious leaders. They were corrupted, letter A. They became a snare to the people. They aided and abetted murder. Doesn't sound like godly priests to me. And they rejoiced in idolatry, which at this time was the worship of the calf, which brings us right back to uh, the Old Testament books back in the, the uh, Pentateuch. And then number nine, they forgot God. Well, how did they do that? They looked to Egypt and Assyria for help. Isn't that a shame? God's people, and, and listen, heaven help us if we start looking to the world instead of God for our help. And that's what many churches have done, looking for the government to bail us out. Listen, God's on the throne. We don't need to worry about and, and rely on others. We just need to keep our focus on the Lord. And so look at the chart there. Again, I think you have it in the back, but you see the chart here of the book. And much of it from chapter 4 to the end of the book deals with sermons. The whole purpose there is spiritual restoration. Again, there, this is uh, uh, because of the situation, the adulterous people, and yet a faithful Lord. And I love this. How Look at, look at the thrust here. God is holy. God is just. God is love. What a great study the book of Hosea is. Now, look at the character of the book. It is like others we've looked at. It is prophetical, and we see the subject of the book is the apostasy and the restoration of Israel. Now, to apostate means to fall away from. You've heard the word backslide. That's what, that's what God's people had done at this time. Many of them were no longer close to the Lord. The purpose of the book for us today is to teach us the unchangeableness of God's counsel concerning Israel. We need to understand that. God, Listen, God's covenants and God's dealing with His people are not based on man, they're based on God. And that's why I put the word there, unchangeableness, and hopefully you can spell that right, all right? So that's a long word. Now look at the outline, just simple, and it's, it begins with the personal aspect of the book, and this would be the faithless wife that God asked him to take, and then the faithful husband. Now these were pictures of Israel and God himself. Now notice you see the children or the signs, you see the wife or the backsliding, what, what the symbolism there is, and the husband or the deliverance, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then it moves from the personal aspect to the major portion, which you saw the sermons there on the outline. This is the national aspect, not just personal, but as a people. And here we see the faithless people and their faithful Lord. Faithless people and their faithful Lord. And this deals with the transgressions of Israel and their prominent, that would be idolatry and anarchy. You see the visitation upon Israel is prominent there. We see the, them going to Egypt and Assyria and the influence there that the world is having on them. And then, of course, the book ends, chapter 11 and 12, 13 and 14, with the restoration. And this is where we see the retrospect or the remembering of how good God has been, and of course the prospect. I always love how God ends, like in this book, with there's, there is hope. That's what you see when you get to the end of the book of Hosea. The scope of this book is 41 years. That's the duration, the period of his prophecy was about 41 years in length. The writer I've already said is Hosea. You see that in chapters 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Well, who did he write to? He was known as the Jeremiah of the northern kingdom. Now, remember, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And so we find Hosea crying out to the people of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and both of them, Jeremiah and Hosea, were scolded by the divided kingdom for their backsliding. Hosea's experiences were in his home while Jeremiah's were in his nation. Remember, he was the home missionary. Now, when was it written? Well, his prophecy was estimated about 755 to 714 B.C. 
that was recorded in Israel. The key chapter is chapter number 3. In chapter number 3, great chapter on God's undying love. I, I love how God loves us in that while we were yet sinners. You know, we see this throughout the Old Testament and the New. Key verses are found there in chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. Look at that verse. But in me is thine help. I will be thy king, where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities. What a great two verses there. You've destroyed yourself, but I am your help. Key word is found 15 times, the word return. Well, listen, there's no need to return if you never left. And so we see again that they had gotten away. The key phrase is latter days. Latter days, chapter 3, verse 5. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return and see the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. The key thought is backsliding. Again, we are talking about the apostasy there, to slide away from God. Now listen, a lot of churches get this wrong because they don't understand the Bible. Once saved, always saved. But people can get away from God doesn't mean they lose their salvation. And a lot of times, people, churches, try to get people to, to believe that they've lost their salvation. Last time I checked, the Bible says that we have eternal life everlasting life, and we didn't gain it ourselves, God saved us from our sins. And so we can't lose because we never earned it on our own. God gave us eternal life. The spiritual thought, again, is return, O Israel, return. The uniqueness of the book, look at this, chapter 4, we won't look at the verses, but you look at these, it deals with spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance. We're living in a day where people are ignorant and illiterate when it comes to spiritual things, much like Hosea's day. The Bible, notice here, Israel had been given God's oracles, the Word of God, and as a result, they knew. They knew about God's laws and the promises. We even see this in the book of Romans, talking about Israel. Yet, as a people, she had failed to heed the Word, which resulted in a willful, willful ignorance. See, that's what happens. Some people, they willfully ignore God, and they will answer for that someday. And that's why the Bible mentions in Amos uh, chapter 8, and verses 11 and 12, that there was a famine of the Word, a famine of the Word. Now, notice also, to be ignorant of the Word, I've given you some things here. I want you to maybe come back on this, if you would, and I apologize for going through this quickly, but when, when there is an ignorance uh, of the Word, notice it is that they are ignorant of the Messiah. They really don't understand who He is, the whole purpose of His coming. Because, look, He is the Word. He's the wisdom of God. He's God's revealed knowledge. That's what the Bible tells us. Notice also, to be ignorant of the Word means that they re rejected of God. There's no fellowship with God. There's no blessing from God because we see the rejection of God. Here's a sad one. They were barren barren, to have the glory and the service and the testimony turned into shame. And then letter D, they turned from God with a heart that was set on iniquity. Letter E, they were fruitless. What did Jesus say in the New Testament? His, whole, his heart was that we would bear fruit, that we would have much fruit, and that, listen, that we would have fruit that would remain. But yet as God's people in the Old Testament, look at this, they were eating but not having enough to have a form of godliness but no power of God, a form of godliness. And then we see also that they were judged by God in verse number 9. You, you read those verses there, it's pretty amazing what you'll find. Now I've given you this little section just to kind of give you, again, a comparison here. Notice Israel versus God. Now we understand that it's all about God. But I want you to see from chapter 11, if you take the time and look at these references, here's what you'll find. Israel worshipped idols, yet God loved them. 
Letter B, Israel ignored God, yet God called them. Letter C, Israel refused God's lordship, yet God taught them. Are you starting to see how good God is? Look at letter D, Israel followed their own counsel, yet God drew them. Letter E, Israel backslid, yet God fed them. That kind of makes me think of the prodigal. He came back, and what did his father do? He killed the fatted calf. Letter F, Israel lied about God, and yet God encouraged them. And then letter G, Israel lived in deceit, yet God assured them. God is good all the time, is he not? Now notice a couple ways that Christ is magnified in the book of Hosea. We see that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord God of hosts. And here's a good one in chapter 13. He is Jehovah, the covenant-keeping Redeemer. The covenant-keeping Redeemer. And I love how then each book of the Bible you can see the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in these Old Testament books, we see that again. Now, concluding the book of Hosea, the father heart, father heart of Hosea was ever pleading with God's wayward people to return, for them to repent of their backsliding, ever pleading with them. He was doing that on God's behalf. Notice invitation after gracious invitation was given, yet when one considers the awfulness of Israel's sins, we stand amazed at God's gracious call to return. Time and time again. And so he was ever pleading with them. And God has done that so many times, even in our day. Notice the second thing here. Only by remembering how much God has done for each of us will we be able to avoid rejecting the one who can give us eternal life in glory instead of the hell that we deserve. Never forget. And you think about America. I wonder how many people truly have forgotten September 11th. And you think about what God's done for you and how, how quickly we forget. Notice the last thing. Hosea has shown us God's heart of loving commitment, loving commitment. When we do sin, if we have a sorrowful heart filled with repentance, then God will bring us back to himself. And he'll show us his ever, notice his never-ending love to us. We see that in 1 John 1, 9 beautifully. And so again, God's heart of loving commitment. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so the book of Hosea, what a great study. Just really 13, 14 chapters, tremendous study. Now the next book is the book of Joel. This is the book of God's severity and goodness. Listen, God is severe sometimes when we're off in sin. Joel means, Jehovah is my God. Again, I, I love the pronunciation. Joel is really Yael. Joel, Yael is how you pronounce his name. He's the prophet of the torn heart, the prophet of revival. For he saw the genuine repentance was at the foundation of all real revival, and he labored to produce it. That's why we still have revival meetings. That's why we still preach the Word of God. Because, listen, all of us from time to time need to be revived. And this is what Joel saw. He saw that there needed to be genuine repentance. That was at the foundation, and he labored to produce it. Joel is the prophet of the Pentateuch. And the reason I say that is because when you look in this book, there are 25 references to the books of Moses found in his prophecies, 25. He's also known as the prophet of Pentecost. Kind of interesting. You see that there in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Now, again, that day eventually happened in the book of Acts, but he's known as the prophet of the Pentateuch and the prophet of Pentecost. Much evidence points to his having been the first prophet. He would have known Elijah and Elisha in his youth, and he would have been regarded as, and many times people call him the pioneer of the prophets. 
And so, again, he's the first prophet. Do we have that chart again? And you can look back, but if you notice over here, Joel, he's the very first of the prophets, the pioneer, they call him of the prophets, and you can see that there and uh, spend a little time on that chart. Now, notice the contents of Joel is there there had been a devastating plague of locusts. This is what you find as you get into this book in the Bible, the locusts in the land. They had devoured everything, and they left the people impoverished. All the crops, listen, there was no Walmarts back in that day. You know, there were, there were no publics to go to, and so the people were impoverished. There, there was a famine. This judgment had be, befallen Judah because of her sins. All of this was God had allowed because of her sins. She was being chastened by God to cause his people to see their need. That's what God does sometimes is he will do things in our lives to bring us back to himself. You know, if something happens in a church with someone, guess what? The whole goal of discipline is restoration. Let me say that again. It's not to throw people out of the church. Anytime discipline, and we never enjoy it, but it's a part of of what God has given to us as a church. And when discipline needs to happen, the whole goal is restoration. So we see here in the book of Joel that, yes, there had been a devastation, the locusts, had ravished the land, judgment had befallen them, all because of their sins. What does God do? He chastens them. Remember, the Bible says, whom God loves, he what? He chastens. So it sounds to me like God loves them. People say, boy, that's cruel. No, that's God. God's not going to let us sin successfully. He's going to deal with us. I didn't enjoy it when I was a kid when my dad decided to take his belt off. And it wasn't because he was going to change his pants. It's because I needed some help. Now, I didn't enjoy it. The Bible says that uh, no chastening for the present seems joyous. But I'll tell you what, as I got older, I was glad I had a father that loved me enough that he chastened me when I needed it. And here, that's what God's doing in the book of Joel. Now, remember, it's not because God is mean. It's because of God's people and their sin. God was dealing with them. Notice here as we think about him and, and the kind of prophet that he was, notice this act by God had been prophesied, what God was doing by Moses. Look at the reference here in Deuteronomy 28. Look at these words. Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field and shalt gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. Boy, that was long before Joel's day. God had by Moses told this, Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but thou shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. Sounds to me like this was all something. Shouldn't have surprised them because Moses had already said it. God had given it to him. Not only did Joel use this catastrophe to call Judah to repentance, but used it to picture a greater judgment yet to come. Get this now, not just what was going on there, but a greater judgment that was yet to come, armies that would invade their land if they continued in sin. You've heard the story. It's like the person driving down the road, and they see sign after sign after sign that says, Bridge is out. And they just ignore the signs and go right off the cliff. God, many times, had showed His people, Listen, something far worse is coming your way if you don't turn from your sin. This was the prophecies of Joel. Joel saw a bright side. He saw the day in which God's Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And the day when Israel's enemy nations would be brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat for judgment. And so Joel used, and and it was a wonderful thing for the people of his day, we may not always get it or understand it because we don't understand some of the customs and manners of the day, but Joel used local things to teach last things. Hopefully you understand that. Things that people, Paul many times in his writings, he used even this morning, we were talking about agricultural things, athletic metaphors and so on. What did Joel do? Joel used local things, people, things that people could understand in his day to talk about or illustrate last things, things that were going to happen 
in the future. Now, the character of the book, again, or, or I think we have the chart here. You have it in the back. And again, I won't take a lot of time. But again, notice here, talking about the day to come. So if you see there, B.C.A.D., okay, we understand it's talking about things yet future. And we see in the middle of this the call to repentance, the restoration that is possible. But then notice that finally you see in the end the day of the Lord. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But it says, then rejoicing over the deliverance. Again, every one of these we see hope that God is still giving his people hope if they would turn from their sins. Now, the book is, again, another prophetical book. The subject of Joel is judgment of the day of the Lord, watch this, with blessings that follow. So yes, judgment, but there are blessings that would follow. For us, notice the purpose, to teach us, as we study this book, the judgment, watch this, judgment always precedes blessing. Judgment always precedes blessing. And we see this again and again. Look at this simple outline. It, it too, is divided into a very simple two-part. One is historical, and that deals with the desolation that took place in the first uh, chapter and part of the second chapter. deals with the fact of the desolation. Again, the situation, the locusts were relentless, and there was a call to repent or penitence and a cry in prayer by the prophet. Then we see the cause of the desolation that, again, the locusts were resistless. Again, a call for repentance and a cry in prayer. We see the historical aspect of the book, just a small section there, about half of it almost, about the desolation. Then notice the prophetical dealing with what is yet future, the deliverance, and we see the promise of present blessing for them, the restoration of Judah, the visitation of the enemies, and the fertilization of the land. So again, small book, couple chapters, but very rich in the message that God had for his people. Joel's prophecies was about 39 years, 39 years. Again, Joel's the writer, chapter 1, verse 1. And who did he write to? Well, it was confined to the southern kingdom of Judah the southern kingdom of Judah. And again, we're talking about a divided kingdom, some to the northern, some to the southern. And when was it written? Joel's prophecy was estimated about 835 to 796 B.C. and being recorded in Israel. Now, the key chapter, mentioned this earlier, is the day of the Lord, chapter 2, the day of the Lord. Let me read something to you that someone wrote. I think it's a pretty good description here. He writes, the day of the Lord is a period of time. A lot of times we hear the word day, we think 24 hours. The day of the Lord is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. Today a man may be a blasphemer of God, an atheist. He can denounce God. He could teach bad doctrine. Seemingly, God does, not, does nothing about it. But the day designated in the Scripture as the day of the Lord is coming when God will punish sin. And He will deal in wrath and in judgment with a Christ-rejecting world. One thing we are sure of is that God, in His own way, will bring every soul into judgment. The Bible talks about the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat for the saved, and the great white throne judgment for all the unsaved. The day of the Lord, the key chapter, chapter 2. And now the key verse is in that chapter, verse 32. It, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the book of Romans, doesn't it? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion... And in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Great verse. Key word to the book of Joel is, of course, repent. Repent. Key word, again, is the day of the Lord. You see the references there just in the book of Joel. 
The key thought is, turn ye even to me, saith the Lord. Sounds to me like God is still pleading with his people. Through the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. God says, turn ye even to me. Spiritual thought is, watch this, sound the alarm. That's what we need to be doing today. Be a voice crying in the wilderness, sound the alarm. And that's what Joel was encouraging them to do, tell others about what was going to take place in the day of the Lord. Now, the uniqueness of the book, two things. One, again, because of the locusts, we see the plagues of the locusts that are mentioned, and the whole purpose behind the plagues was to show Israel that a life of sin will strip you and rob you of God's blessings. Ever seen the effects of sin on a person's life? It robs people. Takes years off of someone's life. You know, I see people sometimes, and and I get to know them a little bit, and I find out how old they are, and I'm like, wow. I had no idea they were very much younger, but they looked very old because of a life of sin. And that was what the locusts were all about, the plagues. Then notice the promise of the Spirit. We mentioned this earlier because he was known as the prophet of Pentecost. And so what he describes here is the Holy Spirit's outpouring was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Notice the verses here in Acts 2. But this is that which was spoken by the the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. See, a wonderful thing is we're living in the New Testament times. In the Old Testament, when you study the Word of God, here's what you find is the Holy Spirit of God would come upon an individual for a specific task or for a specific time, but it was not in a permanent indwelling presence. And when Jesus was on this earth, He says, I'm going to send you another comforter, one just like me, a paraclete, And as the Son of God went up, the Holy Spirit, which was the promise of the Father, came down. And from that time till this time, every person that has put their faith in Christ has the immediate presence and pleasure of having the person of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit we see here, well, listen, that was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Christ is magnified in two ways we see here in the book of Joel as the Lord your God and then also in chapter 3 as the hope of his people. Jesus still is the hope of every man. Now the conclusion of Joel's book gives us some of the most striking and specific details in all of scripture about what is known as the day of the Lord. These are days that are cloaked in darkness Armies that conquer like consuming fire. The Bible talks about the moon turning into blood. They call it a blood moon, like an eclipse. And so you see this taking place in the day of the Lord. Now, notice it also gives us vivid pictures of destruction in Joel. And those pictures should serve to awaken us from our spiritual stupor. Here's what happens is a lot of times Christians get saved, and and listen, it's a wonderful thing to be saved. But our attitude many times is, well, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, I don't really care about other people. But listen, that's not God's heart. God's not willing that any should perish. And that's why he says, ye are to be witnesses unto me. God's given us a responsibility to tell others about him. That's why we want to be a witness for him, and we need to have ourselves awakened from our spiritual stupor. Notice here, as it comes to the church, we are to remember that we are in the plan of the ages. Look, we are a part of what God had in store all along. This is not plan B, and we are in the midst of the age of the outpoured spirit. We have the blessing of having God's Holy Spirit in our lives, having the power of God. Notice the message that we have to deliver to men is that of the possibility of the fullness of the life of the Spirit of God. Our business 
as the church, as Christians, is to urge men to call on the name of the Lord and thus be saved from the judgment of his immediate day, from the judgment of his imminent day, the day he comes back, and from the judgment of his final day. And we have that responsibility. And listen, that's not going to happen unless we have our spiritual senses awakened. And the book of Joel does a good job to help us to understand that. And then notice, if you would, the book of Amos tonight. And you're doing well. Hopefully your pen has not run out of ink, all right? The book of Amos is the book of the plumb line. Now, I've done a lot of work, a lot of construction. A lot of times I use what is called a level. It's a thing with a bubble in it. There's another thing that they used to use in days gone by, and it was called a plumb line. And we will see this come out in the book of Amos. Now, Amos' name means burdened. Now, remember, this is the book of God. And so his very name means that God is burdened. His name is pronounced uh, Amos, or Amos as we say it, Amos. He is known as the farmer prophet. He was a layman. A working man. You know, a lot of a lot of a lot of pastors in our country, they're bivocational. Uh, I like to work with my hands. But I'll tell you what, look here. Churches need more lay people, people that are members of the church to get involved. And this is what we see with Amos. He was a prophet. Notice chapter seven, verse fourteen. Then answered Moses, uh, Amos and said to uh, uh, Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and the gatherer of sycamore fruit. So because of his background, we often see from the writing here that Amos was actually first rejected as a prophet. People didn't receive him because he was a, a working man, a layman, so to speak. Amos possible, possibly knew Jonah and Elisha when he was young in his youth, and Isaiah and Micah as an older man, and he was a contemporary of Hosea. Amos was among the prophets. He was the third of them. Now again, you look at that chart. I think we have it again. Maybe I put it in there. There it is right there. And you see Amos there as the third of the prophets. And again, having the distinct privilege of knowing so many as a young man, as an older man, these tremendous men of God, Jonah, Elisha, Micah, and, and of course uh, Hosea, and he was the third of the prophets. Now, when you look at the book of Amos, the contents upon the success and victory of Jeroboam II over Syria, the people enjoyed great prosperity. This resulted in immorality, lavishness, and gross sin. Kind of reminds me of America. Everybody wants to go, for years, history proves, everybody wants to go to America so they get rich. The great gold rush of California and so on. Well, notice what many of the results are. Immorality, lavishness, gross sin. And among that, calf worship had been mixed with Baal worship. Doesn't sound to me like... They're, they're bent on worshiping God. Priests were committing shameful acts. People were living as though God did not exist. That's how they were living in that day. Amos was sent. Now listen, keep all that in mind as we continue. All that going on, they had been, there had been prosperity, but all the sin that came along with that. Amos was sent to Bethel, which at that time was the seat, the 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 main worship area of calf worship. And he was sent there to exhort the king and the people to repent of the injustice, the greed, the drunkenness, the swearing, the adultery, the oppression, and I could go on and on and on. All of that coming out of the Baal worship, the worship of the calf, and so on, the priest uh, living wicked lives, not leading the people the way they should. And so notice that we see now the prophet threatening them with captivity because of their lack of contrition, not wanting to do what was right in the sight of God. Now, when I write that there and I say that he was threatening them, remember, he's speaking for God. God's warning them. 
because of their lack of contrition, thundering out the judgment of God. So Amos backed up his messages, look at this, 40 times. And he uses this expression, thus saith the Lord. Time and time again, he's, he's saying to them, look, this isn't coming from me. This is coming from God himself. You need to pay attention. It's like kids sometimes. One kid will tell the other sibling, hey, listen, you need to clean your room. Why should I clean my room? Are you my boss? No, mom said you better clean your room. Well, that's different. Mom said I better clean it. So we find here the prophet is 40 times in just a few chapters telling them, thus saith the Lord. His preaching brought such conviction. Look at this. The king ordered him out of town. That's conviction. Hey, you know, there was a time in our country where there were dry counties, where preachers would stand and preach the Word of God, and bars would close down because they were preaching against the liquor industry in this, in this country. Nowadays, everything goes. Every place you go, they sell alcohol. And people's houses are full of it. And he, we find here that this man stood, and his preaching brought such conviction that the king orders him out of town. His prophecy at Bethel came about 30 years before the northern kingdom fell and was taken captive by the Assyrians. Even though God still raised up prophets to cry unto his people, Israel, look at this, had by this time, no doubt, reached the point of no return. And you can go back and look at the references there, 2 Kings chapter 17. They were, they were so far down that road. Although his message was harsh, and it was, you read it again in the book of Amos. He spoke of God's mercy in the midst of that. The mercy of God is seen in his often repeated invitation to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. He brought comfort to the truly godly people. Listen, those in the kingdom that wanted what God wanted, that were trying to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord, and the promise there of the Messiah's coming in the kingdom. So again, we see the harshness of the message, but we still see the mercy of God shining through as he tells them, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. As a layman, he illustrated his messages, and he used common figures of speech. And again, I think it's good that we understand, and and we need to familiarize ourselves. We're not Israel. We did not live in Bible times, but we need to be familiar with the Word of God. And look at some of these figures of speech. In chapter 2 and verse 13, he gives the illustration of the load and pressures of his ministry to a cart full of grain. He uses that illustration and that cart being full, the load, the pressure. Secondly, look at this, his call from God to be a prophet to the roaring of a lion, the roaring of a lion. The third one that he used as figure of speech, Israel as a sheep, the sinful majority have been devoured by a lion and the remnant as two legs and a piece of ear taken out of the lion's mouth by a shepherd. Interesting illustration there, very vivid. Notice fourthly, he uses the figure there of clean teeth to judgment by a famine in the land. And then, of course, we come back to number five, a plumb line of truth. He uses that to illustrate Israel's crooked sins and the consequences of these sins. And then one that you probably are familiar with in chapter eight is a basket of summer fruit. He uses that to illustrate Israel's spoilage. <laughs> we, we bought some stuff the other day. and We got home. My wife, she was smelling, and she said, there's got to be one bad in this bag. You know, she's looking through it to find it. You know, you've often heard about one rotten apple, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. And we see this here, a basket of summer fruit. Now, look at the chart. I think we have the chart on this one. And you see, again, Israel here. Notice the Gentile and Jew and the Jew and Gentile and the judgments. And notice here, judgments against the nations, judgments versus Israel, the five visions of judgment. And then again, the message at the end, hope. There is judgment throughout much of this book, the righteousness of God's law. God never changes. 
It's man that gets away from God. And again, notice here, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel, in chapter number 4. So again, we need to understand the importance of this, and we see God working in these people's lives. Now, the character of the book, like the other two we looked at tonight, is prophetical. Again, we're following along with these minor prophets. The subject of his prophecies is God's certain judgment upon the nations about Israel and also upon Judah and Israel, as you saw on the chart, with the exhortations to repent and again seek the Lord and the promise of Israel's restoration, their restoration. Now for us today, the purpose is, we look at this, to teach us the sins that separate us from God must be judged before fellowship can be restored. We were back there talking about witnessing to people, and I was given the illustration about Adam and Eve. And God said, you can have anything in this garden except what's on the tree in the midst of the garden. And so what did they do? They disobeyed God. They took and they ate. When that happened, God expelled them from the garden. In other words, what happened was sin separated them from God. Fellowship was broken. And so we find here as we study this book, yes, we see the judgment of God, but we need to understand it is sin that separates us. Isaiah said that. Our iniquities have separated us from our God. God wants to have fellowship, but remember this, He's a holy God. That's why He says, I am holy, therefore be ye holy. Why? Because God wants to have fellowship with us. Now notice here the outline, four things. First of all, he denounces the sins of the nations bordering Israel and Judah. Then he describes the state of Israel and Judah and predicts their judgment. Then he relates his visit, as I mentioned earlier, to Bethel, and he sketches impending punishment of Israel, which he predicts to Amaziah, and then he projects thoughts to the fulfillment of the Messiah's kingdom when God's people will be forgiven and enjoy His blessings throughout all of eternity. Chapter number 9. Now his prophecies, the period of it, was much shorter than many others. Notice just nine years. And of course Amos is the author of this small book, chapter 1, verse 1. And although Amos belonged to the southern kingdom, notice his ministry, it was written chiefly to the northern kingdom. He belonged to the southern But remember, God was the one that had him prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. The period of his prophecy, just nine years, 764 to 755. Again, like others, it was recorded in Israel. And the key chapter is, of course, the end of it, chapter 9, where we see Israel's dispersion. And then we see the restoration coming into view. Chapter 7, verse number 8 is the key verse. The Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And he said, I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not again pass by them any more. Sad words there. The key word is plumb line. Chapter 7, verse 7. And again, I mentioned it earlier, well, what is it? It's a symbol here in the Word of God of judgment according to righteousness. God's a righteous God, and this is to test the uprightness of God's people. The key, there's two key phrases, and I wanted to include both of those. I say this verse often, Amos 3, 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? You know, the only basis for our fellowship is obedience to the Word of God. That's why we can't hold hands with other religions of the world, because we don't agree with them doctrinally. And we don't hate them. I'm not going to be unkind to them. But look, we cannot walk together except we be agreed. And we say, well, pastor, how do we handle that? Listen, this is what we believe right here. And if it's not in here, then we have no business being in agreement with others, and tremendous verse there. And then the other one you see pop up a few times in chapter 1. Notice this statement here, for three transgressions, and then you'll see some words, 
and then you'll see these words, and for four. For three transgressions, and for four. What is this about? Well, it's an expression used to show that their cup of iniquity was full, and it was running over. It was full and running over. And we see this throughout his writings and, of course, the prophecies to the people. The key thought is prepare to meet thy God. Just saw that on the chart, chapter 4, verse 12. The spiritual thought, I've mentioned a few times, even in the title, is drop the plumb line, not, not on the ground, but use the plumb line. And, and we'll see this in just a minute, the importance of the plumb line. Now, uniqueness of the book, I love, again, many character studies. One of them is Amos, and we see Amos's character and how it corresponds to Christ. Look at these six ways that we see in Amos's life, and we also see it in the life of Christ. One is they both were of lowly origin. Secondly, we see a similarity in their preaching. Amos used figures of speech. Jesus, many times when he was preaching and teaching, used parabolic teachings. Thirdly, there was a dependence, both men, upon God and the Word of God. A dependence. Number four, both of these very busy schedules. Jesus hardly had time to sit down, uh, no place to lay his head, and we see the same thing with the prophet. Number, number uh, five, they took the rich to task. And again, riches of this world, oftentimes we get our eyes on, the, on the, the temporal instead of on the eternal. And then look at number six, they were both charged with treason. And that's chapter 7, verse 10, and then over, you know, the story of Christ in John chapter 19 and other places in the New Testament. Now, in chapter 6, in verse number 1, here's a phrase that is mentioned, kind of interesting. It says, those that are at ease in Zion. Zion is a word that is synonymous to Jerusalem. It was uh, the hill there around Jerusalem. Now, notice number one, what is meant, what it means to be at ease in Zion. Well, to be at ease means to be indifferent to the the things of the Lord. It means to be trusting in false security, putting away the day of judgment. In other words, we're not going to be judged by God. And then number letter D that we are worldly-minded. That's what it means to be at ease in Zion. Now, secondly, what happens to those that are at ease in Zion? They go into bankruptcy, chapter 6, and captivity. Secondly, they go into disfavor with God. They lose God's favor. They go into dearth. In other words, the famine and all the hardships of life. Letter D, they go to a premature grave, all because... They're at ease in Zion. Letter number three, what should be done about going into ease at Zion? Well, again, back to chapter four, prepare to meet thy God. Well, how do we do that? How do we prepare? By examining our basket of fruit. Remember I mentioned that earlier. What are we talking about? Well, listen, I think that corresponds to our condition. What condition is our heart? Then notice another way to prepare to meet God is by seeking him. And then thirdly, by submitting to God's plumb line. Well, clearly God's plumb line is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see those things that are unique in this small prophetic book. Now, how was Christ magnified three ways as the God of hosts? The fallen tabernacle. Interesting there, chapter 9, verse number 11. And the word that is used there, the fallen tabernacle, is actually the word that's used by John in reference to the physical body of Jesus. And so it's a description there, of course, what the Lord is going to do at that time, what He has done for us. And then notice in chapter 9, verses 11 to 14, that Jesus is our Davidic King. And of course, the covenant there referring to the nation of Israel, the throne of David, that He would sit upon that throne, and He is magnified in those ways in this book. And then As we conclude with this particular small book in the Minor Prophets, notice the the message of Amos, I really believe, is needed today as much as ever. In nations throughout the world, God's people are still being persecuted. I believe uh, Lennon told me that 17 uh, missionaries were abducted in Haiti today. Today, 16 Americans and one Canadian. You see, this is still going on, 
God's people being persecuted. Even so, every act of persecution against God's people, whether they're Jew or Gentile alike, notice it is known to God and it will be severely judged by God. So again, God knows all things. God knows about those missionaries. And persecution is something that we're going to see more and more of. Notice God will take vengeance against his enemies, but know that judgment begins, interesting here, the Bible says, at the house of God. We don't need to look at others. We need to look within our hearts, look within our own ranks. Far too many people who call themselves Christians, even true believers, they ignore God's word and God's commandments, or they seek God only for his blessings or for help in times of trouble. In other words, God is their get-out-of-jail-free card. That's what he is for many. Notice, like the Israelites of Amos' day, some live only to please themselves. Every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. Notice this word here, religion is still heartless, and the religious are still half-hearted. The rich still neglect, they still oppress, they still exploit the poor. Injustice still dominates most nations and even institutions. And in that word institutions, You can even include churches if you'd like. Now, God has judged nations and His people for these sins in the past, but here's the key. He will do it again. God is just. It was bad enough that Israel was in such a backslidden state, but to have remained in that state, in that condition, and do nothing about it was even worse. They were willfully doing what they were doing. They just remained in it. Now look at this, the book of Amos has forewarned us, and let us, as the Bible says, have ears to hear and hearts willing to obey the message of God. Now look, I'm not a prophet, and you aren't either, but every time you open this book, whether the words are there or not, can I just say it to you, thus saith the Lord. This is God's word. And let's make sure we're obeying it and we're living it every day. Would you stand with me tonight? You've done well. We got through the book tonight, three of them. And so let's pray and ask God to bless our week. I trust you've enjoyed this day. It's been the Lord's day. And it's been marvelous to be with you as God's people. And let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for these three books. And I I apologize for going through them so quickly. And Lord, I pray that even though maybe folks tried to write a few notes and fill in a few blanks, that we would take time, may not be tonight, maybe in the coming days, to go back, read and study these. And I pray that some of this would help us all to be more familiar. I know it's helped me to study it, to understand a little bit more of the day of these prophets and what they dealt with, but even more, the sin of the heart of man. God, help us. May our sin, my sin, not keep you from wanting and being able to bless us. And God, I pray that we would be mindful that we are your people. And this world needs to know you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.